0: We've been occupying ourselves with the first of a five-part series called Church, Why Bother? And uh, you saw at least a small part of what the church is about and why we should bother. I recently was reading a book which actually has, in some ways, not only a similar title uh, to our series, Church, Why Bother?, but some wonderful principles that uh, I found very, very encouraging. It's a small little book by Sam Alberry called, Why Bother with Church?, question mark, and other questions about why you need it and why it needs you. And listen to what he says in the introduction. I thought it was quite good. He says, The park or the church? Now, this fellow is a Brit, so some of the words uh, might be a little bit more unfamiliar to you, but uh, I think you can get it. He says, Being honest, on some Sundays, the park looked like a better option. I was working for a church in Oxford. And my walk to the morning service every Sunday took me through a park. It was lovely. There was something for everyone. A swimming pool, tennis courts, a boating pond, a lake full of ducks, a playground, plenty of space for ball games and plenty of benches for watching everyone doing their something. On a sunny Sunday morning, the place was full Everyone doing their thing and having a great time. And there I was, walking through it all, Bible tucked under my arm, on my way to church. And the question was, if I wasn't a pastor, would I stop? If my paycheck didn't kind of depend on my being at church, would I stay in the park? The park looked like a lot less effort than the church, It didn't look as if anyone in the park was going to put me on a rota, like a list of duties. No one was going to ask me to pick up the tennis balls every other Sunday or turn up early to get the ducks out. (laughs) The park looked like a lot of fun. You could choose what you wanted to do, how often you went, if you went, and how long you stayed. Feel like tennis? Come and play. Feel more like sitting on your own, reading a book? Great. And if you're not here next week, that's fine. You can make friends or not as you wish. The park also looked a lot more normal. No one would think I was strange for going there. Lots of my friends might like to come. Going to the park is a regular normal part of 21st century life. Church increasingly isn't. I am sure I'm not the only Christian and not the only pastor to have had these feelings. Many, if not most of us, have our own equivalent to the park. We live in a time when there is a huge number of alternatives to church on a Sunday, readily available and seemingly very attractive. Sports, bed, shopping, brunch with the gang, hobbies. And as the number of options available to us grows and grows, church seems more and more irrelevant than ever. In the United Kingdom, it was normal to go to church back in the 1950s. 25% of British adults were in a service on a Sunday. Today, and this book was just published, today it's 5%. It's likely that more people will be in your local supermarket at 11 a.m. this Sunday than in your local church. In the United States, that trend, though less far on, is nevertheless heading in the same direction. There are so many reasons why we might not bother with church. Church is an effort. It is sometimes hard, and it's far from normal. So why bother going at all? Why bother making it a priority in your week, every week? Why bother getting stuck in when it means putting yourself out? After all, the park is right there, ready and waiting. That's what this book is about, says Sam Alberry. Maybe you're someone who goes along dutifully to church week by week, but you've never been completely sure why. Maybe you're stuck in and serving hard but wondering if it's all worth the effort. Maybe you're someone whose commitment to church has been waning for a while now. Or maybe you're new to church and you want to know what it is that you're getting into. Whoever you are, I hope you'll find this book realistic and useful. I hope that you'll grow not just to be uh, you'll grow not just to be bothered but excited about your church. This book's last line will be, why on earth would I not bother with church? You may feel a long way from thinking that and wondering how on earth you could ever get to that from where you are. Well, that's what the next 80 pages are about. But for now, let me sum it up in two words, what and whose. When we get what the church is and whose the church is, We really won't want to go to the park or anywhere else on Sunday morning. He's right. He's absolutely right. And regularly and systematically, in order for us not to be bothered by church, but to be engrossed in it and to be a part of it, we need to think about what the church is. And that's what we're doing in this series. We talked last time about five principles of why church is what it is and why you should be a part of it. Do you remember what those are? If you were not here with us, here's what they are. Number one, the church exists to glorify God. Well, if you want to ask yourself the question, why bother with church, then it's tantamount to saying, why bother with glorifying God? The church exists to glorify God. Ephesians 3.21 says that the church is to glorify God. The very purpose of the church is the glory of God. And you remember I said the key word that we used with that principle was doxology. Doxology. Doxa. It's the word glory. It's the idea of worshiping. We exist because God is worthy of our time. He's worthy of our effort. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our glorifying him. And then secondly, last time, I said the church exists to be a repository of divine truth. Now, Maybe you're not familiar particularly with that word repository, a holding place. Or maybe, as we discussed from 1 Timothy 3.15, we said that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. And, and maybe we changed that metaphor from a repository to a building. And you remember I said that this building is likened metaphorically unto where the truth resides. The, the pillars of this church The reinforcement bar in the concrete below and the roof above all speak to the idea of permanence. It speaks to the idea of a residing. And this is where we sit. This is where we reside. And Paul is saying in 1 Timothy 3.15 that the church has as one of its efforts, one of its aims, one of its purposes to have the truth residing within it. You see, the church is really not the physical building. The church are the people. And this people called the church have something called the truth. And the truth resides in the church. And the truth is the greatest embodiment of what the church is and what the church is about. And I said the key word there was theology. Not just doxology, but theology. The church is the very embodiment of the living truth because we worship the truth and the way and the life. Oh, not a piece of paper. Uh, We're not uh, involved in bibliolatry, worshiping the Bible, but we are worshiping the God of the Bible. We are worshiping the living word as he is revealed in the written word. Thirdly, we said here's another reason you ought to bother with the church, and it is this the church is a place for loving fellowship and mutual edification or building up. That's what the church exists for, that's what the church is, that's how the church can be defined. It can be defined as a place for loving fellowship and mutual edification. We saw that from Ephesians chapter 4. We saw that the church is a place in which men and women, whatever ethnicities we have, uh, whatever financial arrangements uh, we have in terms of living our lives, uh, whatever uh, physical abilities or disabilities we may have, and we saw some of those on the screen, all of those things come together in the church for the purpose of mutual fellowship, regardless of who you are regardless of what you look like, regardless of how much money you have or don't have, regardless of how tall you are or how short you are, how thin you are, how big you are. The the church exists so that you and I can mutually fellowship together. And not only that, not only just the fellowship part of it, not only just the, the sweet conversations and the way we interact with each other that's so wonderful, but also for mutual edification, the building up of the body of Christ. We saw that in Ephesians 3 and 4, that we are together for the purpose of mutual upbuilding. That's why our key word is mutuality. Mutuality. And then number four, the church exists also as a training center or an equipping center. And we take that truth that dwells within the church, and we teach that truth. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16 says that we as pastors and teachers are to mutually equip the saints for their work of ministry so that we won't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine so that we are immature, but we are to grow up into all aspects unto him, even Christ to a measure of the maturity of the stature of Jesus Christ himself. And he's the most mature man. We are to mature unto that man. And that's why we said the key word was practicality. That the truth is practical. The truth has legs on it. The truth walks. The truth talks. The truth is alive. And the truth of the word of God Embodied in the very living truth, the word that is Jesus himself, he teaches us, and we go out and we teach others, and we disciple, and there's a practicality to our lives. We're not just here getting our heads filled with knowledge. Oh, knowledge is important, it's critical, but we don't just fill our heads with knowledge so that we can have fat heads and little bitty bodies. What we need to have are the kinds of robust bodies and minds for which practically people are seeing us not just build houses, but telling them about the household of God and what the church is about and how they can practically live. So those are the first five. Here are the next five. You think we can go through them before our time is gone? Thanks for your confidence. Number six, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through 25 of them by the end of this month, and I'm not expecting all of you to remember everything, so that's why we've provided some slides for you so that you can write these things down, you can put them in in the margin of your Bible, you can write them into notes, because you ought to want to bother with the church. You don't want to be bothered by the church but you want the church not to be a bother to you and you will see it as a bother unless you see it for what it is. And when you see the church for what it really is, you frankly won't be bothered at all. Number six, the church is God's delegated representative on the earth. The church, the church of Jesus Christ, the household of God, the family of God, the body of Christ, all of those referring to the same thing. The church is God's delegated representative on the earth. What do I mean by that? Well, look in your Bibles at Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Some folding of pages, some scrolling with the finger. Matthew chapter 16. And the reason why I want you to turn to these passages is that I want you to read the Word of God yourself. And I want you to see what the Word of God is saying about the church and what the Word of God is saying in Matthew chapter 16 verses 13 to 19 is that God has a delegated representative entity on the earth and we call it the church. We're we're God's representatives. And if in fact we are, and that's what the Word of God says we are, then we ought to bother with the church because the church is God's representative on the earth. That's something to bother about. That's something to be concerned about. That's even a mandate. It's a roadmap. It's directions for how you and I ought to represent God in the world. I mean, what would be the most tragic thing on the planet Is for somebody who says they're a Christian, somebody who says they love God, somebody who says that they believe in God and that they live for God and that they are a representative of God without knowing what the word of God says about being that very representative. And so here's what Matthew 16 says. Verse 13 beginning says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? That's a great question. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Speaking to his disciples. And of course, who's the first person to speak up? Simon, Simon Peter, the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth, always sticking, sticking his foot in his mouth. But on this occasion, Simon speaks truth, and he speaks truth by way of a revelation, a revelation, a direct revelation from God about who Jesus is. Here's what it says. But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Messiah. In Greek, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you know when he says, you're the Son of the living God, he's tantamount saying this, you are God the Son. Now that has to come by way of a revelation, by way of the authoritative word of God It came to Simon at that very moment. How do I know that? Verse 17, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar-Jonah, Bar means son, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, the identity of who I am, but my Father who is in heaven. That word revealed, that's where we get the word revelation. Revelation. God has just revealed to you that I am the son of the living God. This is a major statement. He's not John the Baptist. He's not Elijah. He's not Jeremiah. He's not one of the other prophets. He is the Messiah, the son of the living God. If you prefer, he himself is God in living flesh. That's a revelation. You and I can't know that. You and I can't proclaim that. You and I can't believe that unless that has been revealed to us from heaven. If anybody says they're a Christian and they truly are, it is because it has been revealed to them that Jesus is the Messiah. And Peter, as the spokesman for the 12, is proclaiming the truth of that revelation to even the point that verse 18 says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, and that name Peter is a name for rock, like a pebble, and on this rock, different word but it has similarities, I will build my church. Now, don't misunderstand that. Roman Catholics would say that's why Peter was the first pope. That's not what this is saying. And what this is saying, as over against what they say, particularly, and of course, so many others, he's not saying, I'm going to build my church on you, Peter. I'm going to build my church on the rock of the revelation that you just revealed. What does that mean? God is saying this Jesus is saying this I am going to build my church my kingdom, the kingdom of God on earth, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ on the rock of the revelation that Jesus himself is the divine son of God. That's the revelation. It's not on a person. It's not on Peter. Look, if there was truth to the idea that Peter as the spokesman for the 12 or the apostles in general or all the rest of us included were actually the... the foundation stones of the church and of course the apostles gave the revelation and that's why they are a foundation but the foundation is none other than Jesus Christ himself that's the revelation that's what Jesus is going to build the church on the fact that he Jesus is the divine son of God and it's going to be so powerful and so great that Jesus says and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it oh what a what a truth what a confidence in times of great controversy where those outside the church are attempting to stamp out the church what a great truth. What a great affirmation that nothing including hell itself is going to be able to come against the church so effectively that one day we might even say to those who are critics of Christianity, well, Satan did his job. The world did its work. There is no church. The church is dead. Church is gone. There is no church again. Jesus says, There will absolutely be nothing based on the revelation that I am Jesus Christ, the the very revelation of God himself given among men, whereby they must be saved. There will always be this church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And something else very interestingly in verse 19. Jesus said, I will give you, that is, Peter and the apostles the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. That's the rendering. That's the right rendering. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. What does he mean? What's what's this binding and loosing? What is that? Let me tell you what it is. The binding and loosing was an old rabbinic idea That Jesus is borrowing in this context to tell these very disciples of his, these apostles, that you as the leaders, the human leaders, the divine delegated representatives on the earth... Have the responsibility to take this rock of revelation, this idea that Jesus Christ is Lord, that He's the living Word of God, that He's the only hope of salvation in the entire world. He's the only Savior ever given to the world. That's the only one that will ever be promoted and proclaimed in the world. Jesus Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection, His soon coming return. The rock of that revelation. And you go to people and you give them that word. You give them that gospel. You tell them that that's what they must believe. And if they say, this is what I believe, I believe that the revelation of Jesus Christ is true. I believe that he has come into this world. I believe that he died a violent death. I believe he was raised again from the dead. I believe these proclaimed that he will come again. I believe that. I believe that when he comes, he will judge the world, the living and the dead. I believe he's the Messiah. I believe that he's the sent one from God. I believe that he is God in human flesh. I believe that. And I believe that because because of the revelation of God given to me he opened my eyes i saw it he opened my ears i heard this true gospel and i believe this i'd be willing to die for that fact well that gospel message the one that i just told you about if you go as a representative of Jesus Christ to anyone in the world and you say to them you must repent you must believe you must hear that message because there's going to be wrath coming upon the world that no one has ever quite seen. It's going to be such a furious wrath that there will be people who will be judged immediately because of their sin and their rejection of Jesus Christ, and because they have said no to that rock of revelation that Jesus is the living word of God, and they will be judged as unworthy of Jesus' kingdom, And they will be sent to hell forever. That's what the binding and loosing is. That's what it means. If I go to somebody and I proclaim Jesus Christ to them and they reject it, and then somebody else comes to them, and somebody else, and somebody else, and somebody else, until that person dies, all of us have proclaimed to that person the truth of the gospel. And if, in fact, somebody continually and forever in this life rejects such a gospel, then their sins are bound to them, like a coat, like a jacket that's never taken off. And that sin that's bound to them that will never be removed is the truth that they rejected Jesus as Messiah. They rejected that revelation. So you know what the keys of the kingdom are? The keys of the kingdom are our ability as God's delegated representatives to speak a word of the gospel to people. And if that person rejects, we go to the next one. That person rejects, we go to the next one. That person rejects, we go to the next one. And if, in fact, they've rejected all overtures of everyone in their life who has ever gone to them, then God binds their sins to them so that those sins will never depart from them. Oh, but here's the good news. Let's say you have a witnessing experience. You're able to evangelize somebody in your path, and you speak to them a word of that gospel, and it's like they've never heard it quite that way before. God is working. He's opening their eyes. They're beginning to see it. And maybe you... Have the opportunity to actually pray with them and they receive Christ in your very presence. And they start growing and they start maturing. And you know what that is? That gospel that has been shared with them has loosed them from their sins. They're they're not any longer bound to their sins, they've been loosed from their sins. That's the binding and loosing that's going on there. It's not a special class of people like uh, apostles and preachers, elders and deacons who have the privilege of sharing the gospel with somebody. Now, there is a sense of authority here, and of course it does start with those representatives on the earth who are elders and deacons and preachers and pastors. Of course, missionaries and evangelists, But the bottom line is, if there's an opportunity for you, not just the spiritually elite, and not just the church's main representatives, and not just pastors and elders and leaders, but you and I all have the responsibility to preach this gospel. And when someone hears it and responds to it, and they have their sins forgiven, those sins are loosed from them. Everybody has that opportunity. Everybody has that responsibility. That means that every single genuine, bona fide Christian is God's delegated representative on the earth. And apostolically, the gospel started with Peter and these 11, and of course, Judas having been unworthy replaced by Matthias. Surely it starts with the 12. And surely their apostolic doctrine means that they too are those representatives. But it goes far beyond them. It goes to all of us. So I will give you apostles and your disciples and their disciples and their disciples the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Means that when you share the gospel and someone responds their sins have been loosed from them. And you go and you speak a word of the gospel, and when someone rejects it forever and a day, their sins are bound to them. What's what's the key word here? Authority. Authority. We have a certain sense of authority, not in and of ourselves, but it's delegated authority. We are delegated representatives to bring the gospel word to someone, and we have the authority to say something like this. If you don't repent of your sins, your sins will be bound to you forever. But if you receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, your sins will be loosed from you and you will be reconciled to God. Anybody think that that's a fairly important message? We ought to bother with the church because the church of Jesus Christ is the only entity on the planet with such a message. Here's number seven. Number seven, the church is the only place where real forgiveness and reconciliation can be found. That's that's what we're talking about with regard to the church. The church is the only place where real forgiveness and reconciliation can be found. Just turn over a couple of chapters to Matthew 18. Matthew chapter 18. Oh, I wish we had time to go through this. I know Pastor Chris has taught on this. As he went through verse by verse through the gospel of Matthew, we've taught on it here as well. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And by the way, I would say probably ninety eight point nine 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 percent of all friction and fracturing in the church and sin issues between one and another start and stop right there. And aren't you glad of that? If your brother sins against you, what's the most loving thing to do? Go to him or her and tell him his or her fault between you and him alone. And listen to these prized words. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's where most of the idea of the accountability, and that's our key word with this principle. The accountability starts with you and me as a brother to a brother, a sister to a sister, and you won't find that anywhere else on the planet. Not from a spiritual perspective. Oh, you might find someone who wants to help you when it's convenient for him, or they want to share with you in some fellowship around beer, and and you might find that in the local bar or the Kiwanis Club. But you won't find it in the kind of accountability that has a spiritual core spiritual core. Someone who loves you enough that when you sin, they go to you and they reprove you in private. But verse 16, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now the accountability is ratcheting up because the person is rejecting those who come. And, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Well, what does that mean? Well, Just let him be to you as an unbeliever. In other words, if someone is masquerading as a Christian in the fellowship, but they have wanton sin in their life for which they will receive no reproof, no accountability and they have taken the church steps through evidentiary means to actually confirm the sin, to reprove the person, and the person is rejecting all of that accountability. That's our key word. Then you tell it to the church, and the church is to treat that person as an unbeliever. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, oh, here it is again shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. You see now where I get the principle that the church is God's delegated representatives on the earth and that we also have as delegated representatives the opportunity to see people come together in a process. Here there are four steps, a process in which someone receives forgiveness and reconciliation you're not going to find that at the AA meeting. You're not going to find that in a small group in a little study carol in your workplace. Why? Because the moment you start telling people, here's a process, here's how to be biblically and genuinely forgiven, here's how to have true reconciliation with God and man and with men and their fellow men, somebody's going to say, hey, are you one of those church-going people? Because that sounds like a lot of biblical stuff. That sounds like you're lording over me what I may choose or not choose to receive from you. you. You don't have any power over me. You can't tell me what to do. Remember the little kids? You're no boss of me. That's innate within us. And so what Matthew 18 is saying is, here is a process, and the only legitimate process like this comes from the revelation of the Word of God so that you and I have the kind of accountability that we so desperately need. That's found nowhere else, my friends, except the church. That's why it's unique, and that's why you ought to bother with it. The church is the place where true accountability is found, Verse 19, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. you see the link between heaven and earth? What happens in the church is linked with what's going on in heaven. And when someone is bound to their sins, they're bound because they refuse to repent of them. Therefore, they shall not be reconciled with men and men, nor reconciled as a man with God but if you do and if you recognize the church as god's delegated representative on the earth you will say to yourself i have to be a part of that why because heaven is watching because heaven is shepherding because heaven is using his delegated authority in my life to show me my sin and to how to be forgiven of it and how to be reconciled by it this is this is our accountability number 8 Number eight, the church is uniquely commissioned by Jesus Christ to make disciples of all the nations of the world. The church, I'm just giving you reasons for church. I'm giving you reasons why church matters. I'm giving you reasons why you ought to bother with the church. The church is uniquely, number eight, commissioned by Christ himself to make disciples of all the nations of the world. Turn to the last chapter of Matthew, chapter 28. Chapter 28, verse 16, you've heard it and you've probably heard it very, very well if you've been in church for any length of time. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority. Remember we talked about authority in number six? And that's a kind of implicit accountability. We talked about in number seven. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And where does he entrust such authority? Verse 19 Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Do you see authority in this? All that I've commanded you. I have authority. I'm now giving it to you to make disciples and you are to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this is our mandate. This is our message. This is our commission. And what's the key word? Responsibility. Responsibility. You know, sometimes I think it's really good for us to come down to the responsibility to what we have with a very clear, simple ITY word, responsibility. And it is through the accountability that I have and that from the authority that I've been given as a delegated representative of the church of Jesus Christ that I'm to preach this gospel. Which means that if I'm a professing Christian, then I must strategically, prayerfully, carefully, but no less unstintingly communicate the gospel to others. When's the last time you communicated the gospel to someone? We're not asking for a show of hands. But if we were, because God's heavenly court will be giving an examination for all of us, myself included, as to who and how many and with what passion throughout the entirety of our Christian life have we communicated the gospel. Anybody convicted like me? It's not an option. I have commanded you. I've commanded you to speak a word of truth. Well, what if they reject me? They rejected your Savior. What if I don't know their answers? Pray and seek answers about how to teach people all that he's commanded us. What if... What if they think less of me because they think I am strange? We are a spectacle unto the world. We are strange. We're just passing through. The world is not our home. If, in fact, you and I are to be faithful to the gospel, it will inevitably mean that most of the people for whom you're sharing such a gospel shall reject you. It's inevitable. But like brands ready to be burned, take a few of those, as many as you can, with you so that they are snatched from the burning. This is a serious message, right? It's a serious message because we've been given a commission to make disciples of all nations. This is a responsibility that we have. And when you and I know that this responsibility is ever before us, church becomes not a bother, but a blessing. Then I'm, then I'm equipped to evangelize. Then we're going to have a, an evangelism-equipping uh, weekend or a, or a Sunday night or a, a Wednesday afternoon, whenever we can schedule it, and the place ought to be packed. The place ought to be packed because we have a test now for a final examination later. And none of us want to stand before our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross for us, and say, well, I profited from your salvation, but I didn't necessarily think anybody else should have. So I didn't tell them. No, every one of us not only has the opportunity, but we have the responsibility. Number nine, the church is the platform where the ordinances are vividly displayed. The church is the platform where the ordinances are vividly displayed. Oh, I love this. Don't don't turn there because we're running out of time. In fact, it's already ran out, but, but don't be concerned about that. In Romans chapter six, verses one to four, the Bible tells us about spiritual baptism. Not water baptism, but spiritual baptism. And yet, even with spiritual baptism being taught by Paul in Romans 6, 1-4, it's actually picturing something that happens at water baptism. And here's what happens at water baptism. This is not sort of a weird, uh, cultish idea about what the church is doing when they get somebody up there and they put them under H2O. You know, some people think that. I mean what are you doing? You you put them in like a a robe or something and you, you actually dunk them underwater. What is that? That's weird. I think I'd rather be at the park today. Well, what's that person doing? They are commemorating in a very vivid way as a platform for others, the crowd, those who are watching, that what's happening is this. And here's what baptism pictures that a person who is standing there in the waters of baptism are taken down into that water as a symbolizing of this, that they had sins in their life and those sins were being washed away, spiritually speaking, and when they rise up out of that water, they are raised, Paul says in Romans 6, to walk in newness of life. It is a tremendous picture. It's it's a picture of showing the old man. Paul even uses that particular phraseology there in Romans 6. The old man, he's now died. He's died to sin's mastery. He's died to sin's lordship. And when he goes under the water, he's raised, spiritually speaking, to walk now in the newness of life, to follow Jesus as Lord and no longer following sin as Lord. And that particular picture of baptism is so vivid that the Lord Jesus believed that what it needs to be for us is a physical representation of a spiritual truth. And so if you see somebody being baptized and they're underwater, H2O, there's nothing magical in the H2O. Just water. It's what we bathe with, it's what we sometimes drink, it's what we we see in our everyday life. And well, guess what? The visibility of that is the opportunity for us to see what's happening or what has already happened on the inside of the person already. They've died to sin spiritually, and they've been raised to walk in newness of life. And that picture of baptism is such a vivid display, and it only happens in the church. It only can happen in the church. And the same with the Lord's Supper. Baptism is that entrance into the church, as it were, and the Lord's Supper is a perpetual reminder that you and I are celebrating through the bread and the cup the Lord Jesus Christ and his death for us. That's why these two ordinances, and there are only two, are visibly represented in something that you can see and touch. And it's the water of baptism, and it's the bread and the cup that you take to your fingers into your mouth. You say, is there anything else? Well, I went to a church, and it was a bunch of candles. I went to a church, and it was a bunch of kneeling. In fact, it was so much kneeling, I got so tired, I didn't know if I wanted to go back. And that's what some churches are. They have candles, and they've got uh, pictures and figurines, and, and they've got all kinds of uh, uh, smells and sounds. And when you come to a church like this, you're almost saying to yourself, I mean, where are the bells and whistles? Where are the lasers and the lights? I mean, this is kind of boring. I mean, I want a church where, you know, we we sort of do some things visibly where I know that God's presence is around. Guess where God's presence is found? In the heart, the heart of a person who's baptized, and in the heart of someone who takes the bread and the cup to their lips, and the visibility of that, and that's our key word here, the visibility of that is this that those two ordinances represent the reality of what's happening in a person spiritually. And you know how freeing that is? I I don't have to stand here in a robe. You don't have to dress up if you don't want. I'm not wearing funny shoes. You don't have to wear any kind of makeup. You don't have to do any of that because the visibility of the church of Jesus Christ in its ordinances is seen on the platform of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and they are sweetly simple. Sweetly simple. Why? Because we're not gonna get hooked up or distracted by symbols. We're going to be able to worship Jesus Christ freely in baptism and the Lord's Supper in a way that doesn't mean that we're falling for the accoutrements. Here's what we do. We see through the elements to the person of Jesus. That's what we see. It's beautifully simple. Not simplistic, beautifully simple. And what's the greatest picture to receive through baptism and the Lord's Supper? The death of Christ. The death of Christ. If, in fact, we are able, if the preacher can stop We'll celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. And when we do, I want you to see something, and that's where we go for concept number 10. The church is purchased at the cost of Jesus' own precious blood. That's key principle number 10. The church is purchased at the cost of Jesus' own precious blood. Do you remember what Chris read at the beginning of our service in Acts chapter 20? Here's what it says, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. The Holy Spirit has made you, speaking of the Ephesian elders, overseers to care for the church of God. So whatever he says next about the church of God, it's gonna be important, it's gonna be critical. And here it is, to care for the church of God, which he, God, in Christ, obtained with his own blood. Do you notice the word? Purchased, obtained. Let's put a key word to that, tangibility. Tangibility. There was something tangibly done in order for the church to become the church. And it was the cost of the giving of Jesus' own blood. That's tangible. That's real. He really, actually, died and he purchased us you know we could say one principle about the church and it would it would potentially summarize it all and it would be something like this don't ever think of or believe that the church of Jesus Christ and whatever local church you may be thinking of is irrelevant it cannot inherently be irrelevant Because it cost Jesus Christ his very life. The shedding of his blood. And the very shedding of his blood, my friends, is the very evidence why the church is so important. It apparently was so important to God that he initiated the giving up of his own son's life for it. And when I say it, I don't mean the building. Maybe we should say for them, for us. Let's celebrate the Lord's Supper right now.